Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. We asked you to send us your questions about the 2023 MotoGP season, and you sent us an awful lot of them. And a huge amount were about one man, but maybe not who you're expecting. We'll get onto that a little way into this podcast. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. I'm Matt Beer, Simon Patterson, and Val Horentia with me as normal. I'm going to keep this intro as short as I possibly can. Basically, we're all fine. We're all in some houses. Everything's great. It's a summer break. That's what you need to know pleasantry-wise. We've got a lot of questions to get through, so we're going to get straight on with them. Uh, lots of you sent your questions via voice note and so we're going to start with one of those this is from phil in sunny north wales hi team uh my name's phil from sunny north wales um while i was over at the tt recently i spent a bit of time reading uh matt oxley's brilliant book valentino rossi all the races um and one of the things that stood out was um the kind of description of the breakdown of the relationship between valentino rossi and honda back in 2000 and two three and a lot of it seemed to stem from the uh, honda's arrogance and stubbornness around the bike being what makes the difference rather than the rider even though they had a generational talent in valley um you look at the current situation and that seems to be playing out again but rather than it being about which rider goes on the bike it seems to be about the development of the bike uh, you look at the leaps and bounds that the European manufacturers have made in terms of aero and everything else, whereas Honda, as Simon points out quite regularly, seems to be building a bike for the 2016 rules. So does everyone think that this is the sort of culmination of the traditional Japanese um, or certainly Honda attitude towards um riders racing and everything that's probably goes back decades and we're seeing it play out in the way it is now or do we think this is down to the current regime at the top of honda thanks guys keep up the good work i must say i have thought a few times as this marquez situation has been unfolding and we've been approaching a kind of marquez honda end game that uh, this is kind of reminiscent in quite a different way of the of the rossi honda situation a while ago simon what what do you make of the comparison phil raises I, I see a lot of similarities. I think there's there's a comparison there to be made. Um, we know that at that time, Rossi was getting slightly frustrated with Honda, not wanting to do things the way that he wanted them done. Um, we know that the bike the bike wasn't struggling performance-wise because that bike um, was, was pretty epic. And I think that's something actually that we're going to get onto a bit later in the pod. Um, the bike was still good, but it, it wasn't Rossi's bike the way he wanted it to be. It was a bike that was being built by engineers in Japan and then delivered to him, uh, essentially to race without much in the way of, you know, his input being taken. We're seeing similar with Marquez. Like we all know that we're seeing a, a team that seemingly still build a bike. Um, like you say for, for the 2016 rulebook and not the bike that Marquez wants or needs right now. I, I can see him walking away for that reason. Like the, the the situation right now isn't sustainable. It can't be sustainable. 
where we see Mark Marquez wobbling around at the back like this or falling off and hurting himself every weekend. It's it's an order of magnitude worse than the problems that Rossi had when he left. Um, and while while he's contracted for next year and while I, I increasingly see it as unlikely that he'll walk away at the end of next year, I cannot see a future now that involves Mark Marquez at a, on a Honda. That is the, as you point out, the big difference in the two situations is Rossi was leaving Honda as a champion with everything still going his way, but they they were messing things up with him so much behind the scenes that it was untenable. This is, it makes Marquez's situation look even more untenable. The fact that the, I suppose actually the difference is I'm going to say the fact the relationship is breaking down and the bike's uncompetitive. Actually, I, I don't feel like from this distance that the relationship necessarily is breaking down between Marquez and Honda in the way it did with Rossi. It's literally the bike's just rubbish and Marquez is losing patience with it. I mean, yes and no, because the 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 situation with Rossi broke down over the course of a, a fair while um, and it, it became difficult and it became to the point where he was looking for other options. Um, but it, it was kind of a slow process. I think the, the difference with Marquez is that what we're going to see there instead is that it's all going to come at once for him. There's going to be an injury too many because of the spike. And then all of those little niggles that we've seen for weeks and months and years now are all kind of going to come gushing out at once. Um, He's been the ultimate company man for as long as he's been at Honda. Like We've all seen that. But it's starting to crack. It's it's starting to look different. Um, He's starting to say things that are a bit stronger or a bit more um unexpected maybe about honda management and yeah i I get the impression that we're we're on a slippery slope that's very quickly going to become steeper than rossi's was so it's crazy to think that the saxon ring wasn't that point of the final blow up if he could get through five six crashes of lost count again and, and only do that bit of gesticulating and the read between the lines media comments that what it will take to have a Rossi style blow up is quite frightening to think about really. How many crashes can you fit into one weekend? Eight? Nine? Don't know. Anyway, we're going to crack through because we've got an awful lot of questions to get through and a lot of them are from Dan who whenever we do a listener call out, Dan, you always oblige with plenty in one voice note. We're going to, we're going to do two of yours by themselves and also I think I've managed to find a way to answer every other question in your voice note within somebody else's question so we're rewarding the you you sent us a lot of value with those questions so we're going to try and reward it by covering them all in some way Uh, here's Dan's first question which is about Miguel Oliveira hi guys my name's Dan um love the podcast love your work this is my submission for the listener questions episode First one's relating to Miguel Oliveira. After his really sort of tough, unlucky start to the season, and first half of the season, should I say, um, can he become Aprilia's number one man after the summer break? Val, your hand shot up very swiftly while that was playing. How you, you I feel like you're quite an Oliveira supporter over the years. How, what do you make of the prospects for the second half of his season if he gets a bit less broken? I mean, I'm an I'm an everyone supporter. I wouldn't I wouldn't specifically say I'm like an Oliveira or Binder supporter. If if anything, as much as I've liked Miguel Oliveira's performances over the years, I am starting to regret a little bit. At one time, we were doing a top ten, and I put Oliveira tenth instead of Binder. I think that has not aged super well as a take. Yeah, his, history's not going to judge that one well, is it? No, not not particularly. Not that Oliveira was bad, but obviously Binder did emerge as KTM's future ultimately. Um, I think the glimpses of a fit Miguel Oliveira, and it's only been glimpses for obvious reasons that we've seen, have been really good. 
But when when there's so much injury in your season, I think even with a summer break, you'll find it hard to rebuild momentum to where he's consistently challenging the works of really is. So if you know, if I were looking at it, I'd say there will be like a race or two after the summer break where you'd expect him to have one of those, you know, Johans Arco, Tech 3 Yamaha situations where he's really irritating the works riders. But I'd I'd maybe look at more 2024 than 2023. And, and there's also a question of obviously what spec of bike he'll have in 2024 and how much the 2022 RSGP compares to the 2023 one. Because if you hear Alicia Spargo talk about it, uh, it's a three or 4% difference. I think Miguel himself doesn't quite see it as so small. He'd, he'd probably tell you that it's a bigger gap. But of course, obviously, that's always the case with works riders and satellite riders. Works riders say everybody's equipment is the same. Satellite riders say that they're 50 steps behind. So it's completely normal. I think he's been, I think Oliveira has been robbed of a really good season. And I think he's going to rebuild some of it over the rest of the the rest of the campaign but i don't i don't expect him to come on as strong as maybe he could have as he definitely could have if it was just a normal injury free-ish campaign i mean it, to to specifically answer dan's question i don't see a world in which he becomes the number one rider at aprilia in any circumstance this year um, simply because he's riding last year's bike and the guys keep saying that this year's bike is better. Um, everyone at Aprilia's had a bit of a struggle this year. That's We're, we're well aware of that. Um, and obviously, the, you know, there has been... I don't even know what way to describe what's going on at Vinales' camp at the minute. Um, but they, they, they are still outperforming Oliveira. Um, and... We've only really seen one flash from him at the start of the year at a circuit that he loves at his home race, at a track where everyone had done loads of testing prior to the first race. And I think judging judging his whole season and what it could have been from what we saw in the first few laps of Portimao sprint race is uh, is probably a bit much. Um, I, I don't think he would have been top five all season. So, yeah, maybe maybe not judge at all on that yeah but top five but the works aprilia rsgps aren't top five necessarily they're struggling to be top five and i think even a half like one shoulder missing Oliveira has still been there thereabouts with a bit of a step missing so i'm just more than judging it off of portimao i'm trying to account for that mentally and i think that with a more consistent progression through the year with more mileage with more of a chance to learn the bike i i do think he would have been basically there with the guys but the problem is that equates to maybe a disappointing season well definitely a disappointing season for the main apparently is but it would have i think it would have equated for a pretty good season for for miguel himself i think he's one of the people who makes me quite glad we've got 80 billion races on the calendar this year a little bit like a neobastianini because we will get a chance to see how his storyline actually turns out if he can stay injury free in the second half when when the season resumes um we're gonna go on to our first emailed in question uh, sticking with a sticking with the theme in a way because it's about the person who replaced Oliveira at ktm i really like this question this is from bradley Sargent, who says hi guys i have always thought that jack miller has never really fulfilled the results that his talent deserved i think he potentially lost something in terms of his self-belief and killer instinct through skipping moto 2 straight to moto gp and having those first few years getting up to speed with a moto gp bike 
Where others came into MotoGP as champions or multiple race winners from Moto2 with the belief they could do the same in MotoGP, Jack had to come from the back and build his confidence back up to become a frontrunner. I think it might have been a different Jack Miller had he come to MotoGP as a Moto2 champion. What do you think? Val, what do you think? Uh, I think there's... I certainly I partly agree with that. I wouldn't say in terms of necessarily self-belief and killer instinct. I think Jack Miller has plenty of self-belief. It's just, I think he wasn't afforded the same circumstances in MotoGP than maybe other riders. I think a smoother progression through the ranks and through Moto2 maybe would have also meant that a, a manufacturer invest into him more right away and gives him a smoother career progression in the premier class uh keeps him you know in a top level satellite ride because yeah i think it's fair to say at this point that honda wasted him as a resource right like we we can probably make a historic judgment on that uh he got one year in the crt spec lcr then he got two years at the mark vds team he did, you know, he did some good things in those years, obviously, but I think the subsequent years of Ducati proved what Jack Miller, the MotoGP rider, can actually be as a baseline. And he was not punching anywhere near those at Honda and Honda let him go. So if if he had got a start with Ducati, like Peko Bagnaia did, and with the with the faith of a manufacturer, long-term faith, then I think it could have turned out different. Would it have made him a world champion? I yeah, I say I have my doubts, but it's, you know, world champion is very circumstantial. Would it have made him a better rider? Maybe slightly, but at this point, maybe he is anyway what he was always going to be. Which is to say, a really good MotoGP rider who's maybe half a step... Oh, I dropped a bottle. Half a step away from greatness. That's the secret, by the way. I'm drunk all the time when I record this, so that's, that's what's <laughs> happening. Um, so I think another thing... Also, that's sort of tying into that is if you remember when when Jack stepped away from Ducati last year, he was talking about how he felt pressured by the one-year deals and the constant need to reprove himself in MotoGP and how he felt an outsider at Ducati, even though it was you know reasonably welcoming still as, as a non-Italian part of that and as a writer who I think clearly did not have the same faith of the management that Pecco Bagnaia had all throughout. And I, again, I think in different circumstances with a bit more backing, it could have been different. But then there's also, there's also a reason why he, he didn't get afforded that backing. Not because he's a bad rider, not because he's, you know, anything short of good, but just because maybe the people in charge just didn't see that ultimate potential that they've seen in the likes of Banya. Yeah. I, I I agree, but perhaps maybe in stronger terms, in that you know without taking anything away from Jack, um, I think he's a he's a good writer, but he's not an excellent writer. He's he's not an alien. He's not a next level talent in MotoGP, and I don't think he'd deny that himself. Um, so so we've seen the Jack Miller level, and it's semi regular podium contention, the occasional win a few stupid mistakes along the way and not being very good at managing his tires in longer, harder races that, you know, Miller has been performing at that level essentially since the Pramac days. And while the, the move directly from, from Moto3 to MotoGP might have slowed that down. Um, I, I don't think it set back his career. It maybe just took a year or 18 months off the, uh, off the front end of it. 
by putting him on an absolute dog of an open class CRT Honda that no one wanted to ride. And, you know, if anything set him back, it was riding that bike in year one. Um, from there on up, you know, he, he, things were all right, really. The guy started winning races fairly early on um, and, and sort of established that baseline. Yeah, I thought, considering the equipment he was on and the teams he was in, the circumstances, I thought his early years were relatively impressive in a kind of against-the-odds way. I was, I didn't see the obvious reason to move him straight from Moto3 to MotoGP at the time. I didn't think that. He looked good in Moto3, definitely in that title fight against Alec Mar- Alex Marquez, but I didn't see a, an overwhelming, this guy must be in MotoGP tomorrow. Yeah. And effectively, being on CRT Honda that year, he wasn't in MotoGP. He, he was present in MotoGP, but not really competing in it. But like you guys say, by the time he got to the factory Ducati team, he'd had enough of a grounding through those Pramac years, just through enough years on the grid that I don't think, I think anything, any damage that was done in those early years had had enough chance to be a race. And like you say, Simon, we got to a level where we saw what Jack Miller and MotoGP could do. And he's going to end his MotoGP career, hopefully with a few more wins at KTM with a, a decent CV for his level. He, he deserves to win Grand Prix. He's won some Grand Prix in really impressive ways. And like I say, we'd seen enough to know he probably wasn't going to be a world champion at the top level. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best. And that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and Gold Fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the Commuter Collection, and I can tell they're gonna be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The Commuter Collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So the bit you've all been waiting for, the time for the questions that we had. We have more on this topic than anything else. So I'm going to play you a voice note from Elisa from Finland to set the scene. Hi, this is Elisa from Finland. And I had a question regarding Raul Fernandez. Considering that he has been injured at the start of the season, what do you think are the expectations for him from the team and the rest when it comes to the rest of the season and his performance? 
Do you think he is under pressure to deliver, and is his seat under threat from someone else in the paddock? And Fernandez got a call out in Dan's massive bucket of questions as well. Uh, we're not going to play this clip from Dan, but I'm just going to summarise that he basically pointed out that uh, Fernandez is behind Aprilia test rider Lorenzo Savadori in the championship, even though Savadori's done, what, two, three races? And uh, in Dan's words, surely Fernandez staying at Aprilia is now unfeasible. We've also got an email version of this question from Michael Sanderson, who's, who um, says some really kind things about the podcast, which is appreciated. Thank you, Michael. And then asked, why is Fernandez struggling so much? Nothing seems to work for him so far in the Premier class, and his form still hasn't improved, even after the surgery that was supposed to solve all of his problems. Is he just not suited to bigger bikes? Was his MotoGP season a slight fluke, or is something else amiss? And then Nate from Seattle has my favourite version of the Ralph Fernandez question, which is just, is Ralph Fernandez good? So Val, is Ralph Fernandez good? Uh, everyone in MotoGP is good. Ralph Fernandez is good. There you go. Nate. I mean, uh, it depends on depends on what we're what we're using the word good as. Everybody in MotoGP is like the best motorcycle rider you've ever seen. And I, I always think that's just important to point out because ultimately we're we're judging those guys sat in you know chairs on a Zoom meeting. Yeah. So I think it's always important to point out that these are otherworldly talents, all of them, 99th percentile, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Is Raul Fernandez a good MotoGP rider? Not yet. I think that, that much is obvious. Uh we have not seen I think basically anything from Raul Fernandez to call him a good MotoGP rider. I don't think he'll take off, uh, offense at that. I think he he would agree completely. Um, it's 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 encouraging to hear so many questions and so much appetite and figuring out what's what's gone on. Do I think the Moto2 season was a fluke? No, not particularly because also the latter half of his final Moto3 season also looked a lot like the Moto2 season. It also looked like there was a really, really good rider there. Um, he's got problems that I don't think the arm surgery was ever going to automatically solve. And I think sort of the maybe he's made a rhetorical mistake by talking it up so much a little bit because, yeah, it, it helps him actually put races together. But those races don't matter until he figures out single lap pace. And single lap paces has been entirely and very obviously where his problem has been. And, you know, sometimes that can be a case with, with rookies in modern MotoGP. And in a way, maybe we can consider Raul something of a rookie because it doesn't feel like he took anything out of his KTM season. Whether that was his fault, whether it was KTM's fault, doesn't, I guess, really matter to relitigate it that much. I think the only... It matters what RNF Aprilia's opinion on that is. If it views Raul Fernandez as a rookie still, then it's fine. There's still a project there. If it views Raul Fernandez as a sophomore, then it's an unmitigated disaster. And that's, you know, that's the big distinction for me. Uh, I've seen glimpses of really good race pace for him. Really, really good. Starting with, you know, preseason testing in Portimao when he had a lot of mileage at one track. It's clear that he's capable getting to getting to a really good level. Honestly, at Portimao, his race pace looked like he should be in the top 10, which he hasn't been so far this season. But it's just, he's qualifying poorly. And he's making needless mistakes all the time whenever push comes to shove. And the most important parts of the weekend, he's crashing, he's running off. And he's, he's acknowledged it himself. He's, there's something where he can't, as much as he talks about the learning process, it feels like he can't quite allow himself to let it take hold. It's, I, I think with enough time, he obviously comes good. I'm sure of it. But the problem is, 
it's MotoGP, you don't have time. Nobody's afforded time. There's, you know, the promise of the gold at the end of the Raul Fernandez rainbow is all well and good, and it's going to buy him extra time in MotoGP relative to other riders. But at a certain point, writing off three or four years to wait for that is not feasible. It's not doable. I think he stays for next year. I'm pretty confident. Aprilia has given no indication that he wouldn't. But obviously for for 2025, he needs to get a move on because it's a good ride. Uh, a satellite Aprilia run by a team that has had a lot of historical success as a satellite team and its previous guys. It's a good ride. You can't you can't be learning on the job there. You have to start delivering at some point. I mean, let's see. Let's see second half of the year. Second half of the year will be big. I mean, for me, the uh, what we previously said about Jack Miller probably applies more to Raul Fernandez about whether there was a misstep in his first season making a move into MotoGP because it genuinely looks like both him and Remy Gardner gained absolutely nothing from being KTM riders in their first season in MotoGP. Um, they, they both walked away disgruntled, frustrated, and talking about how little they'd learned and how little that they'd been able to learn. So I, I think that he went into the Satellite Aprilia team this year as a rookie, essentially, as, you know, half a rookie was the way they seemed to be treating him. So he has got a little bit of time on his side. But in saying that, obviously something just hasn't clicked yet. And it's it's difficult to see a route out of it. Beyond that, there's also been a few little whispers and rumours starting to come out of that garage suggesting that, you know, the Fernandez family, both Raul and his brother Adrian, have a bit of a reputation as being guys that can be quite hard to work with. And that hasn't been the case so far in his time at RNF Aprilia. But there's a few little whispers and rumours that I'm starting to hear suggesting that maybe things in the garage aren't quite as as good as they were um, that's something you have to be really careful with because it's very easy to get into a death spiral and and just have one negative feed another negative and suddenly everything's terrible. So hopefully the summer break is a bit of a reset there and he's able to come back in after it a bit faster um, and a bit happier in the garage again because you know, the talent is there. We, we all know that the talent is there. That Moto2 season was not a fluke. In no way was it a fluke. Um, he was simply too strong uh, against someone who, you know, in Remy Gardner, who looked to have the experience and the, the you know, everything finally clicked for him. And then you've got this kid who's just rocked up and started smashing out race wins, probably should have won the title um, in the end. He, it was his title to lose more than Remy's to win, I think, yeah. to an extent. Yeah, um, yeah the, it's just, like Val says, how long they have to unlock that talent. The, the good thing is that it very much sounds like he has next year as well. Um, all of the talk that I've heard, no one has ever suggested that he won't be there next year. Um, and it, it seems to be one of those things where fans have kind of picked up that uh, Aprilia are going to break his contract for some reason. Whereas the reality is that teams don't really do that. Um, I think that the Vinales situation at, at Yamaha kind of convinced everyone that it was the norm, but it isn't. It is still the exception and not the rule. So I I can't see him going anywhere for next year. And hopefully that's the time he needs to find the speed that we all know is in there somewhere. 
I'm still not sure that long-term Yamaha benefited from breaking Maverick Vinales' contract, but that's yeah, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> that's a whole uh, other story. Yeah. yeah, that's a whole other story. A story that was uh, actually emerging. Was it pretty much the same weekend that KTM was announcing Fernandez to stop Yamaha getting Fernandez long term? Yeah, that was that all in that same ten minutes, wasn't it? Yeah, it's always it's always around Red Bull Ring and that that yeah. things go mental. Uh, Which begs the question, is Fernandez the rider Yamaha should have on his second bike? And would everything have turned I out mean, fine for both parties? I think the answer is probably no. Probably point, no, but, but it'd, be, yeah. it'd be more rewarding probably for both parties as an experience, as a learning process. Uh, in any case, I think what is important is, I mean, Simon mentioning the, the whispers about the garage atmosphere are concerning but i think are to be expected given how the season has looked so far it'd be i'd be surprised if everything was just you know completely hunky-dory uh i think publicly he's been really good there's no uh, ralph fernandez has a bit of a reputation for either you know checking out or being a bit anti-authority from his time <laughs> in MotoGP last season i think he's been really good this season in how he's publicly spoken about it and approached it. I don't think there's been a lot of entitlement. I think there's been a decent willingness to accept responsibility for things he's done wrong and a lot of reverence towards his his team and his employer. So that's good. That part's good. And because obviously if he was also a difficult presence, then that's the part where that's where contracts get shortened. If you're a disaster to work with, that that does not help. And you know, Poor Johann Zarko and his KTM termination comes up all the time. You know, he obviously requested it uh, a year earlier. But remember, that he was also sidelined earlier than planned. And the, the official reason KTM gave was he was bumming us out. He was making everybody sad. He was miserable and sad. And we couldn't do it anymore. So it's important to, to have the right mindset. And I don't know privately, but publicly, I think he's been good in that regard. Right, moving on to a question from Sam, who is a first-time emailer. And Sam says, do you think Takan Akagami's position at LCR Honda is safer than it might have been at the end of last season? While his results haven't been stellar, there must be some importance in having a rider actually finishing races in terms of data and bike development. Or oh, you're both keen to, to go for this one. I should add, actually, before I throw to you guys, that uh, this is one that Dan also asked about in Dan's list of questions. So is Nakagami any safer? I think Dan might have seen the master list of questions before he sent in his own. Dan is secretly producer Johnny. Yeah, next time we do one of these, I'm just going to go straight to Dan's email and go, do you want to just give us 20 old questions? Actually, no, I'm not going to fit 20 into one episode. Don't do that, Matt. I've heard, I've heard Dan's voice clip. He's not secretly producer Johnny. Uh, that accent is, is convincingly not Johnny, trust me. Hey, AI's made strides. You know? <laughs> AI's done a lot. I don't, I don't think there is an AI filter for Johnny Goal. Which is, I should say, just across the border from me in its own little world. Uh, I don't think whether Taka stays or not has much of anything to do with with how well Taka is performing. And for the record, I think he's had a pretty decent season. I would even I would even describe it as good in the circumstances. And I think there's obvious value to having him to Yamaha, but I just think it's it's a question of do we. Do we want to move Ayagura up or not? And that's that's basically the entire consideration for me. Uh, it's just they're different riders. There's like it's 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 a different question of not different in terms of like performance or whatever. That doesn't matter. They're different in terms of what you're going to get out of them, what your idea for them is. Uh, Taka does a job, but Ayagura is a a project prospect 
potential future silverware bringer. So if you feel he's at the stage where he's no longer gaining anything by being in the intermediate class, and I I struggle to tell you if he is or isn't. His season so far has obviously been massively injury conditioned. He seems to be back-ish towards his normal self, but there's going to be a ceiling at how much use there is at keeping him in Moto2 at a certain point. Uh, according according to Simon, who's been to the to the pressers, he doesn't sound overly bothered, or he's just he's massively guarded. He's Ayagura. He's not going to tell you what he what he actually wants out of 2024. And you couldn't blame him if he's having second thoughts about being on the Honda that's throwing everybody off but Takanakagami. I think it just it entirely depends on whether whether they want to move Agura up, and I guess also whether LCR is about to lose Alex Rins. <laughs> Which it might be, so... Yeah, so we know that the reason that Taka essentially got another year this year was because Ayogura decided he didn't want to ride the Honda, which in hindsight turns out to have been the best decision of his career, probably. Um, but the question mark for me is whether or not he's going to have the right within Honda to say no for two years in a row. Yeah. So basically, if they want him up this year, I don't know if he gets a choice. Um whether it's you know find your way up or find something else to do yeah um but he might it might only even be that simple because you know he comes from a team that has essentially funded his entire career up to this point and i don't know how much uh wriggle room he's gonna have to to say oh no thanks i'm just gonna go and ride for akiayo's team in moto 2 instead of riding a honda moto gp bike i don't know if that'll even be allowed contractually so I think he's going to have to do what he's told, but it's whether or not Honda think that moving him up this year is the right decision or not, because at the end of the day, the only guy that's finishing races on the Honda at the minute is Takanakagami. And sure, he might not be winning them, um, but he's at least finishing them. And there's got to be a little bit of Honda that thinks better the devil you know right now um, and better not, you know, totally demoralizing and destroying our next big Japanese star by throwing him under the bike until we've at least got a little bit fixed the year after whenever contracts are a bit more open and a bit more easier to negotiate anyway. I also feel like this decision with Honda between Agura and Nakagami is going to be one of those things that's like number eight on your jobs list. Yeah. The, the, the seven things above it are enormously important and scary and significant around Marquez's future, making the bike not break everyone constantly, keeping stopping Rins and or Mia leaving. And then you go, oh yeah, we've got this fourth bike, the, the, the one that finishes 13th all the time, but is in one piece. Oh, got, oh the two guys for it? Uh, let's decide that. Let's sort these things first, then decide that later, and then suddenly it's next March. Ultimately, if you're in tear it down mode, if you're in just like, okay, we're just rebuilding from scratch, we're doing everything in you, Ayagura and what Ayagura likes from a MotoGP bike should be a pretty important consideration in what you do with the project, right? I mean... That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, he's he's a rider who's, you know, very promising. He's Japanese, which will count for something. You want to know as soon as possible what he can do in MotoGP and what you need to do to make him succeed in MotoGP. And yeah, the bike's no good, but I think the longer you wait, the the less room you give yourself to ensure a successful future with Ayagura. And obviously the, the, the right counterpoint is if the bike is just 
bad and throws people off and just hurts them instead, then that's a waste of time, obviously. But at a certain point, it you know it will outweigh the risk of that will be outweighed by the gains of being able to know what Iagura needs from your MotoGP program specifically. Let's uh, move on to one from John from Stafford. He says, hi, guys. Loving the pod as always. Thank you, John. My question is, how many riders other than Augusto Fernandez have scored points in every single race? For a rookie, I think he's having a brilliant season. And John says he'll see us at Silverstone with some ciders in hand. John, I'm going to be on the news desk shift that weekend, like usual. But I will have a cider at the end of that night when the Nashville IndyCar race finally finishes. Because, you know, it's still a weekend, even if you're working. So, Augusto Fernandez. So, statistically, I didn't actually check this. Who else has scored points in every... score points in every single race in the season i feel like that has happened yes yes it has and it it tells you that tells you that it's maybe not the most important stat franco morbidelli has scored points in every oh yeah in every race this season you know it's top 15 it's a metric of do you finish races at a reasonable pace um Frank morbidelli's having a mixed season augusto fernandez having a really good season i think he's been impressive I think he's doing what he needs to. I think he's performing slightly above what you would expect given his Moto2 record and just generally. And I think KTM loves him. But I've, I've made this point in written form and probably in podcast form too. If if you have to move him aside for Pedro Acosta, so be it. You have to do it. Like for, for me, that's not even, unfortunately, not even a consideration. Not even something you take two or three seconds to think about, unfortunately. And I really like Augusta. I think he's done a really good job. I think he's very smart, uh, very endearing, uh, says all the right things, seems to approach the premier class with the the level of humility that I think is explained by who he is, but also the career he's had. But if 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 I'm KTM, I I send him like 15 cakes that say, hey, <laughs> you want to do a season in Moto2 again? Yeah. And then we figure out what to do. That's he's been good, but I don't think he's been what Pedro Costa can be, unfortunately. But he's been good. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes good isn't enough. I don't know what Pedro Costa can be because I've kind of got to the point where I've stopped trying to predict what superstar talents are going to do whenever they get to MotoGP because of well, mainly Raúl Fernandez. Yeah. Um, so maybe he can step up and maybe he can perform. Maybe it'll be more difficult than we think, but the only way we're, we're going to find out is whenever someone takes the punt on him. And the more I think about it, the the more that I think the only option KTM have is to promise Raul Fernandez uh, an IO bike again for next, Augusto Fernandez, uh, an IO bike for next year. <clears throat> Tell him we're going to make you the second double world champion in Moto2 history. We're going to give you first dibs on whatever MotoGP bike is free at the end of next year. Please, 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 please stay part of our family and do that for us. Um, he's, he's had a really good year. He's had a strong year. He's had a consistent year. He struggled with one lap pace, which is a fairly standard newcomer thing. And that's meant that his sprint races in particular have been difficult. But he's done an awesome job on Sundays um, all the way through the year. And one thing that's a slight tangent, but I want to throw it in there because it's really stood out whenever I went and did my research for John's question. Uh, the only two riders who finished every Sunday race in the points this year are him and Franco Morbidelli. 
But out of the 22 riders in the grid, only 15 of them have started every race this year. Oh, wow. That's how heavy our injury uh, tally has been so far. I love I love Val's suggestion that the way to resolve this contract problem is with 15 cakes as well. I feel like maybe Aprilia need to do like 15 cakes for Ralph Fernandez saying, can you just ride a bit quicker and look like you did in Moto2, please? Just ice that on top of some buns and see if that has has any any effect. I mean, if he eats the 15 cakes, uh, I don't think that, that might not help. Maybe the protein cakes, yeah. uh, athletes For- like that. Let's um, move on. We've got a voice note from Sebastian about someone we haven't talked about yet other than kind of in tangent form, Fabio Quartararo. Hi, it's Sebastian from Belgium. I was wondering, uh, looking at uh, Fabio Quartararo and Yamaha's struggles since two years, um, if that does not indicate that although Fabio is uh, obviously a very talented rider, a great rider, uh, but that he maybe is not as good in developing bikes. Maybe he's not a very good developer. Um, like, Does he give the right feedback to Yamaha uh, as to where the bike needs to evolve to be more competitive? For example, uh, he pushed a lot to have a more powerful engine. He got it, and now the situation is by far worse. Um, and of course, it's not all within his responsibility. There are tons of engineers behind uh, behind that who should know. But um, yeah, I'm wondering if uh, he's not. Uh, it does not show that he's he's still very young. He's still very inexperienced. Um, has not ridden so many different bikes, and so maybe uh, he's lacking in that respect. Uh, it would be great to have your point of view on this. Um, thank you very much for the great pod- podcast, and keep up the good work. Actually, I'm going to tag on an, uh, another question here. This is from Oz in Texas. He says, I live in Texas near Dallas and enjoy your podcast. Has there ever been two consecutive world champions that dropped off the fight for a championship as quickly and drastically as Mir and Quartararo? Uh, Oz adds, as a side note, I've been a track marshal at Cota five times. In 2017, in my only trip to Europe, I attended the Grand Prix at Mugello. Good choice. And I host a race-watching party every MotoGP Sunday where we watch Moto3, Moto2 and the Grand Prix. Thanks for your show from Ordinary Biker Oz. I'm impressed every single Sunday, Moto3 onwards. The time zone for Moto3 start times in Texas must be pretty brutal sometimes. So that is an excellent bit of party dedication. So these two questions, Oz and Sebastian, we've got Mir in there as well, but let's talk about Cotteraro first. I, I don't think there's been certainly two consecutive world champions I can think of other than the three people retiring, disappear from a title fight. But No, no, no. I, there is there is one, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, Alex Crivier and Kenny Roberts Jr. 20 years ago basically vanished from uh, yeah. title consideration. It's 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 the same thing as Mir Quartararo. It's basically very cyclical. The Duan era ended, the McDuan era was over, and the Valentino Rossi era began, and they slotted themselves into those sliding doors for one reason or another. And then for one re- reason or another, even though both were really good riders, that was that was all she wrote for their, you know, championship aspirations more or less. Uh, I, I don't know that Jean Mir and Fabio Quartararo are destined to repeat that or anything. I really doubt it. But it is true that they also fitted into the sliding doors between Mark Marquez injury and whatever awaits us next. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Um, and in terms of Quartararo's bike development skills, I don't think he's bad at it. I think that it's the same problem as we've already touched upon with Mark Marquez earlier in the podcast. Um, Yamaha and Honda have not yet realized how important aerodynamics are to MotoGP and they're still building a bike that doesn't do what a modern MotoGP bike needs to do. 
So it's it's nothing to do with quarter hours feedback and everything to do with the fact that no one seems to be listening to his feedback. Um, he asked for a more powerful bike. The reason in part that he wanted a more powerful bike was because that would then mean that they would have more top speed to play with aerodynamics that create drag. Those aerodynamics haven't arrived. The bike is more difficult to control out of corners because it's just the old bike with a more powerful engine. It doesn't do anything better or differently. It's just more spin. Um, that's not quarter hour's fault. That's a, a fundamental failing in Yamaha's engineers to understand the direction in which the sport has gone. Um, and, and the same thing applies at Honda with Marquez, I'm pretty sure. Do I think that Yamaha could use a veteran presence alongside Quartararo and somebody with what I would describe as proven bike development acumen? Yes, I do. I wrote like an entire thing about why I think they should go for Johan Zarco. And now I think that Alex Rins and his Suzuki equipment's uh, equipment experience it's completely different words good job uh if he brought some suzukis with him that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world would it if he got <laughs> he brought some kicking around. equipment yeah <laughs> yeah just not the ride height device but yeah but everything else basically yeah i think i think it would be very useful i think i don't think fabio Cortar is somebody you go to to sort out your bike necessarily he's somebody you put on a bike that already is there to do the job and i do remember the last year's sort of semi-debate between Quartararo and Andrea Davicioso over what the Yamaha needed. Quartararo said power. Davicioso said he's only saying power because he's not tried anything else. It's rear grip. It needs rear grip. It doesn't have more grip. It does have more power and it's no good. But it's it's not, as Simon says, it's not Quartararo's fault that the power has been delivered in this way. It is not his fault. And he was completely eminently reasonable in requesting power. It's clear that that bike was fundamentally hamstrung by its lack of top speed. We, you know, we could see it in races. It couldn't, it couldn't do the things it needed to do to grab the points. Uh, so, you know, the, the verdict's still out on Quartararo's bike development skills. He is still relatively new to MotoGP. But again, I think just to circumvent that whole debate, Yamaha should look for a veteran presence on the other side of the garage. It is worth noting that the, the problems that Yamaha have right now, the complaints that the riders have, are not something unique to Fabio Quartararo. They are the same, same complaints that Andrea De Vizioso had. They are the same complaints that Maverick Vinales had. They are the same complaints that Valentino Rossi had. And if you go far enough back, they are the same complaints that Jorge Lorenzo had. It, it, this is Yamaha's problem to fix, and it's not the riders' fault, because... You know, we've seen this over and over and over again, the same issue, um, literally as far back as Lorenzo. And yeah, that th that is going to require, I mean, sack all the engineers and start again, same as Honda. That That's the solution here. It's not sack all the riders and get someone who can ride the bike better because it just seems like there is no way to ride the bike better. Got an email from Ryan in Michigan who says, Hi guys, Tom Jojic and Toby Moody talked about Honda's RC211V V5 from the 990cc era being the greatest motorcycle that ever raced. Why aren't manufacturers taking this engine design and running with it? Are V4s, are V4s the end all be all of MotoGP, with inline four seemingly being a thing of the past now? Thanks for all the hard work on the pod and God bless, says Ryan. Straight and, straight and easy answer. Um, V5s are banned. The rule says... Uh, four-cylinder engines only. Um, I think that was brought in uh, as a cost-cutting measure because the V5 was was 
intricate and beautiful and, you know, incredibly complex to build, expensive to build, and completely devoid from road bike development. Uh, so as part of the, the cost-cutting measures that came in, I think at the end of the 990 era, as we moved into the into the 800 era, the rules were changed to specify that bikes now have to be four cylinders, no more, no less. And since then, everyone has been. Um, it's a shame because who wouldn't love to see some mad Honda engineering dis- you know, happening on the grid right now? But uh, yeah, that that's the reason going to play a voice note from sean from donegal yeah who's uh, going, also going back in time a little bit to an earlier part of MotoGP and just before MotoGP. hi guys sean from donegal here just a quick question i suppose in relation to MotoGP history and its relationship with manufacturers we talk a lot these days about uh factory bikes and satellite bikes and who's staying and who's going and how many bikes on the grid but i suppose what i was wondering is in the pre-MotoGP era particularly when professionalism started to take hold in the 80s 90s early 2000s and maybe the early MotoGP era what was its relationship like with manufacturers were were there more customer teams was it more less formal than it is today and um does the sport uh lose something by being so manufacturer dominated as is now i really like that question just because the even in my time as a fan of MotoGP, which is just under 20 years the manufacturer customer situation has fluctuated so so much and the seriousness with with which most manufacturers take their customers and satellites now is is night and day different and obviously in the middle of that we had the crt blip when there were teams that i didn't really believe existed some of the time popping up with bikes i'm not sure really existed and, and managing to enter motor gp races with them so Val, what are your thoughts about about Sean's question? Yeah, I mean, wasn't around in 500 cc's and particularly around for the start of the MotoGP era. I was a tiny baby. I don't know, I watched football. But, you know, from what I've gathered, uh, I mean, I don't think it's that different necessarily. Like, it's was it less manufacturer dependent back in the day? I'm I'm not so sure. It's just fewer manufacturers and different manufacturers who still, you know, got their way sometimes on what they wanted and it's just that you know their customer teams were different they were less competitive they were less professional they were less taken care of um so you know those that's not not to say that you know it was worse it's just it was a different world pretty obviously um there is a certain romance to those customer teams of old and to those MotoGP and 500cc grids of old. But I mean, that's just, you know, that's how modern sport is going. And MotoGP has been, you know, in lockstep with that. The grid is just much more serious than it used to be. I Maybe the series loses something in that, but it certainly gains something. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a point where you bought your customer bike, you went racing with it. And Honda said, okay, cool, see you next year whenever you come to buy another customer bike from us. (laughs) And that was just the way it worked. And it was possible to be successful that way. Um, It's not possible to be successful that way anymore because there are now six manufacturers. I was going to say, well, there's now five manufacturers, sorry. Per Suzuki. Um, I was going to say, you know, all of whom can win races, but there are Hondas in the grid. So maybe four who can win races every weekend if things are right. Hondas won a race. Yamaha didn't. Yeah, I know. They've won a race this year. Hondas won more than most this season, if you take out Ducati. They've won a race this year. Um, But not in a factory bike. Yeah. (laughs) So, 
it, it, it's harder than than it ever was to win. And as a result of that, you know, the the customer bike thing just yeah, it's it's it just doesn't work anymore. Plus, back in the day, whenever you were able to do it, bikes were a hell of a lot cheaper than they are now. Um, and I don't know if anyone could truly afford to be a, a competitive customer team anymore um, and, and pay up front what the bikes are actually worth because uh, you know the, the, the costs have gone through the roof and you're looking at millions and millions and millions now to actually buy a MotoGP bike. So I think that, that element of it has changed as well. I generally like the kind of strange romance of things being rubbish in top level sport. And th- this question made me think of that interview, Val, that you did with Neil Hodgson a year or, yeah. or two ago, where basically his description of privateer life in his day, MotoGP, was that basically everything was on fire the whole time or held together with sellotape and falling apart while everyone had an argument about it. And uh, I've got a lot of fondness for that as a concept, but I think we're in a really good position now where, with how Ducati in particular has steered the trend of the grid, to be a competitive manufacturer, you also have to invest in your satellites well. And it means we've got a more competitive spread overall and yeah, more teams taken more seriously with Dorna throwing in the right sort of incentives for some of those teams as well. So I think this is kind of a healthy outcome for manufacturer dominance in a way, even though we've got eight Ducatis on the grid beating everyone at the moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bit of a different question now. This is from Ben White, who says, what do you guys feel about the qualifying format and what changes, if any, would be best? Superpole obviously gets mentioned a lot. It's in Superbikes, it's in Moto E, it saves the drama with finding a wheel and the ridiculous amount of yellow flags. But do we care enough about safety to make the change and lose the drama? Also, could we ever see something like four-day weekends where Thursday becomes the old Friday with free practice sessions? Uh, and I think by that he means free practice sessions that don't have any implication on who gets to Q1, Q2 logistically back-to-back races would probably be near impossible unless on the continent but is that something that's been thought about either on your level or something you've heard raised within the paddock so do the qualifying thing first oh i was looking at the screen didn't see who raised their hand first so you you tell me i think i sneaked in first john then i think um so for me the the qualifying format is simple um i think it's one of the rare few things that we should copy from formula one and we should go to q1 q2 q3 the current system is broken because it turns Friday into a horrible mess of setting fast lap times as soon as the lights go out. And as a result, it's putting so much pressure on riders and it's leading to big crashes and people getting hurt. Um, we need a, it's, it's also hurting development, which is something we've talked about before in the podcast, because people don't have that session to actually try things anymore. So for me, Change Friday back to true free practice sessions, both of them. Get rid of the uh, the short session on Saturday morning that we now have that's pretty pointless. Turn that into Q3 and have uh, yeah have three sessions of qualifying instead. Why not? Yeah, um, I 
so for me, this is a difficult one because I see, you know, from a from a normal human point of view, I see how having Friday practice be this pressured thing is clearly contributing to riders being burnt out and hurting themselves. And they clearly don't like it at all. And I think that's very important. It's very important that they don't like it. And it's not good that they don't like the format. I know they're here to entertain us, but it's not good that they don't like the format. And it's obviously not good that they're getting hurt. But it is also important for me to mention, if I wasn't working as a MotoGP rider, I would never tune in for Friday practice if there wasn't a qualifying effect. Never, ever, ever. I would spend every one of those sessions watching like, I think you should leave on Netflix or something like that. I would (laughs) never, ever, ever watch a second of those sessions. And as a rider, without that qualifying aspect, they're impossible to care about. Impossible. Nothing matters that happens there. You might like for... You might as well just cut them then. You might as well just make them go away. But obviously you need you need to have them for riders to acclimatize with the track and with their bikes and figure out the settings. They're important. They're important to how the weekend goes. They're decent entertainment for people on the site. But as a television product, they are completely worthless. You might as well erase the recording every single time once they're done. Just erase it. Use that data for anything else. Um, hate Friday practice. Can't stand it. So the way MotoGP actually does it, I think, is it's very smart. It's just not very human. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I feel. I think Super Bowl is a fantastic idea for qualifying for nerds. And I am a nerd, so I would love it. I would love to be able to sort of focus on every lap to watch, you know, look at data, look at overlays, look at comparisons to how riders tackle certain corners on their laps. But as a television pro- uh, product for casuals, I just don't think it would work especially with 20 riders. I just, I don't think you could do it. I don't think you could get people to tune in for that, unfortunately, even though I think maybe in terms of the depth that you consume it in, it would be quite good and it could add some extra fun grid jeopardy to the to the equation. I would maybe consider like a final top five Super Bowl shootout or something like that. I think that could be fun, but I don't think the qualifying format is broken enough to worry about that. The one tweak I would potentially make is I think top 10 on Friday might be a bit much. So that's my feeling. Like having so much of Q2 decided by Friday relative to Q1 feels a little wrong in terms of priorities. But I don't know if you made it top five or something, would riders just push even harder on Friday? Because I don't want that particularly. It's a complicated one. It's one where I, you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking about it, but it's, it's just such a tough one, man. There's no, I don't think there's a clear solution. I think what they're going to do either after the summer or for 2024 with the, um, you know, making FP1 not count towards qualifying, that's a band-aid. That doesn't really fix anything. But I don't know how I would fix anything. So that's that's sort of, you know, the problem for me. Um, on the other part of the question, um, first of all, we should say that the MotoGP weekends from the outside look like they're three-day events. But if you're actually in the paddock, they're not. Um, hospitality crews arrive at a circuit on Monday. Mechanics arrive on a Tuesday. Writers and journalists normally arrive on a Wednesday. And then Thursday is a full day of media and PR, building bikes, all of that stuff before your three days of racing. So if you proposed in this current climate with 
21 races and you know, a terribly laid out calendar, if you suddenly proposed adding an extra day to every one of those weekends, you would have to replace half the mechanics in the paddock. Um, people would quit. And, and that's not hyperbole. People would walk away because it's just too much. It's already too much for people. People are already struggling. Um, and I think if you if you went to more time, yeah, it would be an unmitigated disaster. I, th- I thought you were going to say you would be arrested if you proposed that, which <laughs> I, I think I think potentially yes. It's. it's I just, think it would be a little more, a little bit more extrajudicial than an arrest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just not it's not quite doable. I, I I see the idea, but it's it's just it's not quite doable, is it? It's like because of how the the week is. It's not. It can't. It's, it can't happen. It's doable if you have a twelve or thirteen round World Superbike calendar. Yes. Yeah. And it's you know I, I'm sure I'm sure riders riders wouldn't mind having an extra day of practice running. And honestly, maybe it would improve safety. But it's just all the rest of the circus that needs to be done with it. Now, even if you don't show it on TV, even if you don't show it on TV, which you shouldn't, because it would be the worst goddamn thing ever. <laughs> Okay, we'll make a deal now, Val. If they do add Thursday practice, we, you, we just pretend it doesn't exist from a website coverage point of view. Um, I was going to say that idea you had there of inventing an eighth day of the week could be handy for, for rotoring and planning with F1 and MotoGP calendars getting as big as they are, but uh, yeah, no. Okay, next question is from Ralph, who emailed, he's uh, listened to the podcast for two years and says he loves the work we do each week. Thank you, Ralph. His question, uh, my question is particularly focused on the junior classes and how some riders particularly find the step up difficult from Moto3 to Moto2. This is particularly born out of Lorenzo Della Porta's exit from the SAG team uh, and the Moto2 Championship this year, four years after winning Moto3 in quite impressive fashion and being a rider I had hopes for when he was in the junior class. Was this a case of just him maximising the best package at that level when he rode for Leopard Honda? and having a bike that was miles ahead of the field in that category or does body size and how you ride a motorcycle change fundamentally as you make the step up to heavier bikes and does that make the adjustments different for some riders interested to hear your thoughts on that and also which other promising junior careers have been muddied by the step up from the junior divisions um dan's big sack of questions also had a reference to Izan Guevara not making much impact in moto 2 and whether that's down to his injuries or just that he's not adapting i thought we could tackle that within here as well so yeah really interesting one once again because i was reading out a question i missed whose hand up went up first so i'll let you two sort that between you yeah, i think it was mine this time uh on isan Guevara, i i don't think we just we can't put it down to injury alone with with the the amount of time that his has, has passed uh clearly he's not adapting as well as he would ideally be or should be that doesn't mean he won't adapt that doesn't mean that the intermediate class won't work for him and i think there have been tentative steps forward but obviously given how how quickly he came good in Moto3, that that is not happening in Moto2. And that's always, you know, that's always going to ring an alarm bell or two. And if you read some of the Spanish media, it's clear that alarm bells are ringing around the place. Uh, I don't, I don't believe that Lorenzo Delaporta had by far the best equipment in Moto3. I just, I just don't because Leopard Honda's record isn't quite like that. It's not... I think you could make a better case for Ajo Moto2 being a championship ruiner destroyer than Leopard Moto3. It's true that it seems to have suited some riders as a package, as an environment, a lot more than others. It's it's true that it's fantastic on 
on straight line speed. That's something that's noticed every year by everyone. But it's I I just don't think it's like it's not I don't think it's the clear best package on the grid. It's just a, a very different package to some of the other packages. Leopard has had how many Moto Three champions have they had? They've had Danny Kent, they've had Joan Mir, they've had Lorenzo Delaporta. Joan Mir came good. Uh Danny Kent and uh, Lorenzo Delaporta didn't in Moto Two. Delaporta's you know, he's had some injury problems, but he's also like I think Danny Pedrosa spec or something. He's a tiny guy, isn't he? I shouldn't say tiny, tiny. He's not very nice, but he's a you know he's a small, small fella. Um, nothing wrong with that. Why am I saying that? What is what is wrong with me? It's like this one hundred and ninety cent. Yeah, you get the idea that being small might not be best for some bikes compared to other bikes. Yeah, which are smaller. I think is what is yeah. what you're trying to say there. And it's, you know, it's also, obviously they require very different skill sets because, you know, the bike gets bigger, the pack gets smaller, pack racing gets less of a factor. Lanza Dallaporto was a very efficient, very good pack racer who was super good under hard braking. Every time I watched Moto3, he was very impressive in how he got into turn one. Definitely won multiple races through that, specifically. Um, Moto2, you don't really get to make the same level of impact with that, but Moto2 also is quite different to MotoGP too. You know, sometimes we do wonder whether Moto3 or Moto2 is the better predictor of MotoGP. It's, you know, it's a complicated ecosystem. I think the one thing that we are certain about is that if somebody is so good that they're going to set MotoGP on fire when they come in, we see it in both Moto3 and Moto2. That's, that's normally the case, I think. But beyond that, there's a lot of, like when you take a level, take a step down, there's a lot of complicating factors, obviously, between Moto3 and Moto2. So while I don't disagree with anything that Vau has said about you know certain people being suited to certain bikes, there is a, a bigger picture here as well. Um, and that is that not all Moto2 teams are created equally. And there, there are... I'm trying really hard here not to be um, libelous. There are all sorts of things going on in the back of the Moto2 paddock that we don't necessarily see very well. <laughs> um, and there are certain teams who are not in the same level as others. Um, and I'm not, this is not uh, an attempt to single out anyone right now. But I know stories of guys who've looked like they've stepped up to Moto2 and been struggling compared to their Moto3 bike. Um, and then you go and talk to them at the end of the season and it turns out that they crashed it around four, bent the frame and the team didn't have the money to fix it. So they raced with a bike that was crooked for the rest of the season. Stuff like that is normal in Moto2, unfortunately, much more so than in Moto3, I think because the costs are higher. So it's 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 harder um, to bring in the money to make sure that you're doing a really good job. And I think that Lorenzo Dallaporta was a victim of circumstances outside of his own control throughout most of his Moto Two career, and that there's a yeah, there's 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 more than just rider talent and rider adaptability to the machinery that they're on that can influence your whole career path. Unfortunately, we're going to throw in another appearance from Dan, and we're going to play your question this time, Dan. This one is about Alex Marquez. Um, last question, Moto GP related, is Alex Marquez. Um, there was a lot of preseason sort of hope and optimism. Has he been slightly disappointing? Um, he's only six points ahead of Morbidelli in the standings, and whilst that doesn't paint the whole picture, he's had a, a bit of bad luck and stuff. 
he is still falling off a lot, so be good to get your guys' thoughts on on Alex Marquez's season. Okay, so I felt earlier on when I said I, I think you have favourite riders, you kind of denied that and said you you love everyone. I do think there's a there's a fondness fondness within you to a certain type of rider, one who is probably often a bit disappointing compared to what they're capable of. And I put I put Alex Marquez. Well, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe Alex Marquez's peaks are higher than his default level. Anyway, Alex Marquez, what do you reckon, Val? Yeah, you're right. I like peaky riders. I mean, that much is true because I immediately envision them being at their peak all the time. And for some reason, I, I always think, oh, it's just, you know, one small change away, maybe one contract switch away. Uh, obviously, Maverick Vinales is going to win 7,000 rounds next year <laughs> once he finally figures out his consistency. That's obviously right just over the horizon. It's definitely happening. Uh, I don't think Alex Marquez has been disappointing. You'll be you'll be shocked to hear. I just... I mean, he's he is crashing unforced too much. That is true. But he's also... He's been robbed of a lot of points by circumstance. Like a lot, a lot, a lot of points. That that gap to Morbidelli is, is just not representative of the performance. Not even, not even of the speed. It's not representative of the performance. It's not fair. He has been better than his points points tally suggests. Uh, maybe took a bit of a small step back right before the summer break in terms of performance, but it was still pretty good. And, you know, he's added some points. I don't think he's been disappointing. I think he, I think he's a very good rider who Grishini should have very few reasons to regret signing. I think... He's still been, for instance, perfectly fast enough to, you know, not only score a podium, but be in the process of ending poor Fabio Di Gian Antonio's MotoGP career. Um, he's, you know, he's not doing a Bastianini and an A Bastianini at that Grassini team, but I, I think disappointing would be way too harsh. It's still, you know, it is still a, a satellite bike. Yeah, he's not doing Marco Bezzecchi level things on it. But I think with Luca Marini, he's there or thereabouts with less experience under this Masedici, I, I think he's been good. I think he needs a clean run. But I, I maybe slightly disappointing, maybe is fair if you feel that way. But I, just, I think too much circumstance for me to feel that way. I tend to agree and disagree in that I think that part of the, the Alex Marquez problem is that he's kind of caught in a bit of a spiral at the minute where the the, the speed is there. The speed is absolutely there. And as Val says, he's been really unfortunate to not be able to show it this year through various things um, and, and various you know pieces of bad luck and, and things not coming together. But simultaneously, it seems like the more he struggles to deliver the results that we're expecting of him, the more aggressive and the little bit more reckless it's making him on track. Um. I've always said that luck is something that you manufacture, that it's no surprise that the, the most talented, most hardworking writers are also the luckiest because it comes as part of it. And I think with Alex Marquez this year, we've seen someone who's in part made his own bad luck by just being a bit too gung-ho, uh, a bit too aggressive, especially in opening laps. Um, and that, he almost needs a bit of a reset and, and to come in after the summer break to avoid contact with anyone in the opening laps of a few races, maybe get in the podium a couple of times and then sort of reassess what he wants from the, the year. Because yeah, I, I think it's, it's not entirely other people's fault that he's ended up in the positions and the situations he's ended up in this year. 
Our last question, I'm a little bit wary about letting in because I'm a little bit cautious about where Simon's going to gonna go with it but let's uh let's give it a go steve reed from colorado writes i've followed the grand prix series since the mid-1970s sadly though the one thing that angers me is the inconsistency of the steward's decision making at Aston alone brad bender got busted twice and pedro costa whom i greatly admire clearly ventured into the green area of the long lap penalty area and got away with a second trip to the penalty loop and then Steve suggests a solution involving taking the stewards to an empty field and something else that is actually beyond anything Simon suggested. So we're not going to read that bit out loud. And we're going to move on to Steve saying, enjoy the podcast, keep up the good work. So I'm going to give you a time limit of very 10 seconds, Simon, to uh, to answer this question. What can be done about stewarding inconsistency? The MotoGP stewards need to be completely replaced with someone who actually understands what uh, things like legal structure, jurisprudence, precedence is. Because even if you took Freddie Spencer away to a law school to teach him all those things right now, he's lost all the respect of the writers in the paddock and his position is completely untenable. And I have no idea why Dorna and the FIM continue to keep him in place. Val? Yeah, there's a legitimacy crisis. I mean, for what it's worth... I was reasonably convinced by the video they showed of Pedro Costa in the long lap loop. I was like, okay, you've given me this Zapruder film where you can sow reasonable <laughs> doubt, and whenever there's reasonable doubt, you cannot penalize. I think that's fair enough. Um, and the Bender thing, there was no real reasonable doubt there. I mean, they're annoying for, for you know, as, as a watcher, they're annoying, but as a sporting event, you sort of get why that sort of thing can happen. Very annoying, but can happen. I don't think that's specifically the fault of the steward specifically. But as for all the other steward stuff we've talked about, yeah, obviously, just more formal, more structured. And if if the current crew can't get it done, then get a new crew in. Because clearly there's a legitimacy crisis. I mean, that, that seems very obvious to me from everything I hear writers say for many years now. There we go. I think we got away with that in a fairly smooth fashion there. Thank you. Thank you, both of you. Um, thanks for answering all the questions. Thank you so much for sending so many. Uh, there were loads of really nice words about the podcast and the work we're doing on there as well. That is really, really appreciated. It's um, We often record these in a slightly sketchy state at the end of a race weekend with Simon just crash landing into a quiet corner of a press room somewhere and um, Val off his face on Dr. Pepper and sheer adrenaline. Um, but we really, really enjoy doing them. And when we throw throw the call outs or questions, we get that many in and it's it's clear you're enjoying what we do. That is that's a really lovely feeling. So thank you for that. We will we'll try and do a few more of these call out for question ones in the second half of the season because we, we really enjoy doing them. Uh, right. Toby Moody, we'll be back with you next week. We've still got quite a lot of summer break left to go stick with the rest of the race's output for quite a lot of MotoGP features Simon is off to Goodwood with most of the MotoGP field this weekend we'll drop in a few TT bits for you during the summer break as well I reckon there's quite a lot still to talk about from that um F1's still going on if you like that sort of thing which which me and Val do I have to say well, it's a bit tiring as well doing that not on Monday not so much on Monday <laughs> uh, thank you for your time uh, hope you're having a good summer break MotoGP fans and we'll see you back here very soon The Athletic 